Well, it's just delightful to be back here. I first met Kevin and Kimberly nine years ago. That's remarkable, isn't it? Nine years. And uh, I've been coming back to San Diego, this fellowship here in San Diego, for, is it five years? It's at least five years, isn't it? Six. Anyway, it's a lot. Anyway, I just uh, appreciate you very much and I appreciate the opportunity to be with you and to share the gospel again and I thank you for the way you've looked after Daisy and I'm nervous that it might have been too well. Um, She has to come home. As Kevin said, the Lord made those remarkable promises about what happens in the lives of his people in this world and how he knits their hearts together and how he creates bonds and I'm just going to tell you the old, old story again today and uh, I love what happened when the Paul... And Barnabas came back to the church, and this is what I intend to do tonight with you all. After Paul had been on that first missionary journey, he came back, and when they were come together, they gathered the church. This is Acts 14, 27. They gathered the church together, and they rehearsed all that God had done with them. I don't want to say anything new tonight at all. I just want to tell you what... I just want to rehearse. We're just here rehearsing, aren't we? Rehearsing what God, all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. That word rehearsing is used again just over the page next 15 and it talks about declaring. It's declaring. We are just declaring the old, old story again. And we have a great gospel and we have a glorious, glorious saviour to proclaim. And so I want to take you to one of my favourite verses in the Bible, to Galatians chapter 2. And I want to spend our time looking at verse 20. And I trust as I go through verse 20, the context of the rest of it will become very, very clear to you. But it's one of those verses that's been my favourite verse, one of my favourite verses in the Bible. Because they keep growing your favourite verses, don't they? Every time you sort of think you've got them nailed down, you find another one and then and the Word of God is living and active and so each time we come to the Word of God, we're actually expecting it to say something that we hadn't seen before. And Kevin might testify and, and John as well, the number of times I've actually studied and studied and studied and you stand up in the pulpit and all of a sudden you see something on the surface of Scripture that you hadn't seen and you're just humbled by the fact that this is a living Word. And the glory of that, of course, is that the living word speaks of he who is alive now and he who speaks now and speaks to the hearts of his people through the gospel. Let me read this verse. I'm sure you know it well, but I want to rehearse it because I rehearse it all the time. And I want you to rehearse it all the time. You who have been granted the glorious faith in our dear and precious Redeemer. I am says Paul, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's a glorious, glorious picture of, and it's a glorious description of the gospel, isn't it? And I just wanted to look at it just briefly eight times in that one verse of scripture. Paul uses a personal pronoun. 
I or me, eight times. And that, I think, is the first thing that we need to see in this verse, isn't it? That Christian life is personal. It is a personal relationship between you and a living God. It always is personal, isn't it? I, I, I. And he's not being egotistical. You know better than that about our brother Paul. But personal faith, all saving faith is personal faith. And I love the simplicity of it. He says, I am crucified with Christ. In fact, in the original, it says just two words. The first one is one that includes him and Christ. He says, with Christ, I crucified. And they're just two words in the original Greek. It's amazing how much can be said in just two, two small words. I am crucified with Christ. I, with Christ, am crucified. So it speaks, this, these verses speak of a blessed union between the believer and his Lord. And it speaks of a blessed new birth. And it speaks of a blessed indwelling between uh, us and our Lord. And then it speaks of a very, very blessed faith. The faith that I live by, the faith that Paul lived by, the faith that every believer lives by is the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith looks away from ourselves and looks to him always, always. And then at the end of it is there is a glorious, glorious description of the love of God. He loved me. His love is always particular. His love is always personal. His, all, his love is always saving. His love is always powerful. He loved me and he gave himself for me. So there we are. That's our outline. And that's what I want to rehearse before you tonight. So if you're ready for a rehearsal, I'm here to give you, in as simple a terms as I possibly can, the glory of this particular passage of Scripture. He says, as I said earlier, the first thing I want us to note is that there is, it is extraordinarily personal, isn't it? It's I who believe. It's I who receive. It's I who embrace him. It's I who see him. And all of these things are the activity of the new birth. The new creation sees him as he is. And I trust him and I know him. And as with baptism and the Lord's Supper, it's personal, isn't it? When you're baptised, you're personally baptised. And that's a picture of your union in the life and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you take the Lord's Supper, you literally take it into your body and it becomes your life, doesn't it? It becomes a part of you. 98% of our bodies are changed every year. And so we are in this continual state where we are what we eat. And, we, and so we feast on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the more we feast on him, the more we grow to appreciate him and to like him. But it's personal, isn't it? I, 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 he says. But he speaks of this blessed union. I am crucified with Christ. This is Paul's personal testimony. And you know from 1 Timothy chapter 1 that Paul is a pattern for everyone who would hereafter believe to the saving of their souls. And so Paul's a pattern. So he's a, pat he's a pattern for us. Here we can rehearse this pattern. I'm crucified with Christ. He says, literally, I have been once and with finality crucified with Christ. Crucified with the Lord Jesus Christ. And obviously he's not talking about 
the physical, Paul wasn't there at the physical crucifixion of the Lord. He's talking about that real spiritual union between the Lord Jesus Christ and his body. Christ and his bride are one. The head and the body are one. The vine and the branches are one. They all derive life together, don't they? The husband and wife are one. All of the pictures in the scripture picture this this glorious eternal union between the Lord Jesus Christ and his bride. I love what Thomas Goodwin wrote something about this. As in the womb, head and members are not conceived apart from one another, but having relation to each other, so were we in Christ as making up one mystical body to God, formed together in the eternal union of election. I can never get my head around that. I can never get my head around the wonder of the fact that the Lord God put a people into his son before the foundation of the world and he gave them to her to be his bride. How precious was she? How precious is she to God? How precious a gift to be given to a recipient like the Lord Jesus Christ by God the Father. Oh, brothers and sisters, let's not undervalue, let's not undervalue the glory of our God in his redemptive purposes. Let's not undervalue the glory of God in this union. And it's in the church that he gets glory for his son, where these things are rehearsed and revealed. He gathered that church together back there in Antioch and they rehearsed what God had done, how he opens the door of faith. And the door of faith sees these things here that we're talking about now. It's a real spiritual union. All of humanity, except the Lord Jesus Christ was in Adam, but all of Christ's mystical body are in him eternally. This is the eternal covenant that holds the Bible together. It's the covenant that David died. He laid his head on his pillow for the last time and he said, the Lord has made with me an eternal covenant, ordered and sure in every detail. When was the ordering? When was it made sure? By David doing something? It was made sure before the foundation of the world, brothers and sisters. It's made sure and it's ordered. And that encompasses all of the events of all of our lives. Every step on this journey through this life is ordered and sure. So all of Christ's mystical body are in him eternally. I am crucified with Christ. Every single member of his body was crucified with Christ. When he died to sin under the law, they died to sin. Why did the Lord Jesus Christ go to Calvary's tree? Because of a union with his people. Why did he why was he put to death? Because the wages of sin is death. He was made, if you go in Galatians there, go over to Galatians chapter three, he's redeemed us. Christ has redeemed us. From the verse 13 of Galatians 3, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that 
that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. We are crucified with him. We are crucified with him. We're buried with him in baptism under death. We're raised with him to newness of life. We're sitting together with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus in Ephesians 2. He's entered into heaven to appear in the presence of God for us. We are one with him. Wherever the head goes, the body must be. I can't, I can't for the life of me explain that, but I can believe it. And I've been rejoicing in this for a long time and I like rehearsing it. I like rehearsing things that I've enjoyed. I don't know about you, but the things that I really enjoy, I like to hear them over and over again. The things I, I love to eat, I love to eat them over and over. I love them. And this is food. This is real food for the souls of God's people. We are one with him. We're one with him eternally. We're one with him spiritually. We're one with him vitally. We're one with him really. We really are one with him. And someone might say, well, that's how God sees things. Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, how God sees things and how God declares things is how they really are. God creates reality by speaking. How did this universe come into existence? God spoke and reality comes into existence. Spiritually speaking, God speaks and our reality comes into existence and we just believe it by the new birth that he brings us. That's how God sees things. This body of flesh that you see with all of its sins and all of its frailties and all of its infirmities and all of the offences you might see and all of what you see has been crucified with Christ. Been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, and there's so much more to say, Kevin can pick up the pieces of all this and adjust it in time. But nevertheless, says Paul, nevertheless, I've been crucified, nevertheless I live He's crucified yet alive, he's dead yet resurrected. He really does have a physical life, but he really does, and the real life that he has is a life, a spiritual life in God. If Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, says Paul. He's speaking here, of course, of the glorious new birth. We are raised to a newness of life. We have a new life. We have a new history. We have a new heritage. We have a new family. Daisy's met a whole lot of family members here in America, hasn't she? And then when Kevin and Kimberly come to Australia with um, as many others as can come in December, they'll meet a new family, won't they? And we have a family that is just, as Kevin said, we are scattered throughout the world and all that I have is all of they they own it equally with me in a sense, don't they? They have freedom to it. This passage of scripture is Paul speaking again of this extraordinary reality that we are crucified with Christ and yet we live in this world. And what we live in this world is what Paul describes in Romans chapter 7, that in his flesh dwells no good thing and when he would wish to do good, sin is right there with him and he has a desire to do good and the things he desires to do he can't do. It's just flesh. It's flesh, brothers and sisters. And regeneration is a new creation 
It's a new man formed in you. It's a new creation. And as much as there are some extraordinary changes to the old creation, the reality is for you, any of you who've walked any time with the Lord, you would realise, like I do, that the more you walk, the more you, you realise how much sin is just there all the time. It's lurking there all the time and it gets stirred up in ways that horrify us again and again and again. And we look to ourselves and we look inside and we say, how on earth could someone who has those thoughts dare call themselves a Christian? How could someone who has those thoughts dare stand up in front of people and speak on behalf of the true and living and holy God? I just love the fact that salvation is by grace. And Paul is no different to Kevin and I and others who speak before you in God's behalf. I love what Don Fortner said some considerable time ago and he got into trouble for it and he was right and they were wrong. He said, my relationship with God affects all that I do in this world. But all that I do does not affect my relationship with God. My relationship with God is all of Christ's doing. My relationship with God doesn't change from day to day, from moment to moment. It changes in my apprehension of it, but it doesn't change from God's perspective. And as I said, when God speaks, God creates reality, and it's his reality that is the real reality. So there is nothing in the flesh that's made holy, and there's nothing in the new man that is not perfectly holy in the sight of God, which is why the Lord Jesus Christ can take his bride on that last day and he can present her to the Father, holy, spotless, unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Not in the sight of man, in his sight. And one day that's how we'll see each other, brothers and sisters. If that's how we see each other that day, then it's a good thing to start looking at them like that now, isn't it? If God has put all away, away all of their sins and they have no sin before God and the Lord Jesus Christ has borne all of their sins and borne them away and suffered the infinite wrath of God, what right have we got to bring them up, brothers and sisters? What do they need when they stumble and fall like you do and I do? They need to hear the gospel again, don't they? They need to hear the gospel. They just need to hear about the Lord Jesus Christ. The life I now live in the flesh. Let's go back to our verse. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Christ liveth. That means that he lives now. He always has lived and he will continue to live, don't they? There is an eternal union and it's the resurrected Christ that lives in me, the reigning Christ that lives in me, the returning Christ that lives in me. This is a remarkable, a remarkable reality that is just so evidently on the surface of scripture and yet is not, is not taught and yet it's there everywhere, isn't it? The more you look for it, the more you see it all over the scriptures. Listen to what the Lord Jesus Christ said about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. It's a synonym for coming to him. It's a synonym for believing in him. It's a synonym for receiving him. Whosoever eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh, John 
6.56. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me and I in him. We declare a mystery, brothers and sisters. That's what God says. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ said. He speaks of a day in John 14, 20. He said in that day, he speaks of his disciples and he's bringing comfort to them in John 14, verse 20. In that day, you shall know, this is something that believers know, you shall know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. There is just, I do love what Romans 15 says, isn't it? There is the joy and peace of believing. It's not the joy and peace of understanding and explaining. It's the joy and peace of believing. This is what God, This is the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ to his Father. Listen to what he says at the end of that high priestly prayer. He says, and he says in verse 22, we can start there, And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them, verse 23, even as thou hast loved me. Father, I will. The Lord Jesus Christ petitioned his Father in John 17. It's a glorious exercise for the comfort of your face to go, be, go into your Bibles and if you dare write on them, put petition beside all the petitions in John 17 and then write Amen after every single one of them because that's what they are, aren't they? This is a petition from the Lord Jesus Christ just before the cross to his Father. Did his Father grant these petitions? Of course he did. He raised him from the dead. He's seated, seated in heaven right now. Has he the power to make these petitions come true? I think he does. Last time I checked, he did. Listen to this. Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them. In them, is what he says. And I in them. Brothers and sisters, the safest place in all of this universe is to be in the Lord Jesus Christ. The safest place and the securest place in all of this universe is for him to be in you, isn't it? No harm will befall the righteous. We live, we live upon the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so much of our joy and peace is just, just upset by us taking our eyes off these glorious truths, aren't they? This is just the reality, isn't it? This is the joy and the peace of believing. And as we are enabled by God, by his spirit, to live on Christ and to draw from him all that we need, all of our resources, all of our hope and all of our peace and all of our righteousness, all of our salvation is simply in him, isn't it? It's from him. 
And he's the one that actually gives the gift of faith so that we can hold on to it. And he's the one that gives that new creation that sees these things and rejoices in them. So all spiritual life, as all life, must come from God. Ultimately, the wonder of it all is, isn't it, it's not our interest in Christ, but Christ's interest in us. It's him sustaining what he's produced, isn't it? It's him sustaining that life. The life that I now live in the flesh, Paul does have a real human existence, just like all of us. And he knows what flesh is and he knows the weakness of his flesh. And one of the glorious things about our gospel is it never hides the infirmities of the flesh of God's people. And it never makes an excuse for them, but it never hides them. So that there is no hierarchy amongst sinners, brothers and sisters. Isn't it a glorious thing to think that when Abraham, if you picture now Abraham seated in glory and Rahab the harlot seated next to him, what's the dress that they're wearing? It's exactly the same, brothers and sisters. He's washed us in his blood and he's robed us with the very robe of the righteousness of our God. So the life, the life I live in the flesh if God would grant us the grace for this to be our portion, wouldn't it? The life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God. I don't live on the basis of my faith. I live on the basis of the faithfulness of the Son of God. How faithful is our glorious, glorious Saviour? He was faithful in that eternal covenant of love, wasn't he? That eternal covenant of peace. Faithful as a servant to his father. He's faithful to all his promises. He's faithful to all his threatenings. He's faithful yesterday, today and tomorrow. I change not. I will never, never, never leave you nor forsake you, says our God. If you turn with me in First Thessalonians, a lovely description of the faithfulness of God and its outworking in First Thessalonians chapter chapter five, verse twenty-four. Faithful is he that calleth you, and he will do it. What will he do? What's the it that he'll do? Just go back to the previous verse. The very God of peace sanctify you wholly. There's nothing missing in the sanctification that the Lord Jesus Christ is to his people. We sanctify you wholly, not a little bit. Not with you adding your little bit to it as you go along and progressively getting more and more ripe like a piece of fruit to fall off the tree into the arms of God. We are perfectly sanctified and perfectly holy in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the it is, isn't it? He's faithful to doing this. He'll sanctify you wholly and I pray, God, your whole spirit, soul and body be preserved, blameless, until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Preserved, preserved, preserved in him. He's faithful to all the words of this book, isn't it? He's faithful. Thy testimonies thou hast commanded are righteous and very faithful, said our God. So is he faithful to the words that we've just read out of Galatians 2.20? 
It's a terrible thing to even ask the question, isn't it? It's a terrible thing to even ask the question. And yet, you like me will spend a bunch of time in this life doubting whether that's true. And that's that flesh, isn't it? That flesh that rages and wars against us. That flesh that is continually at enmity against us. That flesh that is stirred up by the reality of the new creation in us. There is no, there is no war between those who don't have two natures, but those who do have two natures have this war. Paul says in Galatians 5, For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary one to the other, so that you cannot do the things you would. What would you do? If you were a believer, you would just live for God, wouldn't you? You'd live in the delight of his company, the delight of his presence, the delight of the reality of who he is. You would fix your eyes upon the beauty of his holiness and just be enraptured. And you would walk in his ways, all, and you can't, and you don't, brothers and sisters. But also, on the other side of that coin, if you were left, if you were left, you would be more extraordinarily evil than you could possibly imagine. We are restrained in both ways. But we who walk with God, we who have this extraordinary gift of this new creation, this new birth, we find that battle, and the battle humbles us. The battle causes us to look on our brothers and sisters with a care, with a care and an empathy and an understanding of their weaknesses and their failings, and it never causes us to rise above them so that we can look down on anyone at all. But God's faithfulness is how we live, isn't it? We live by the faithfulness of him in eternity. We live by the faithfulness of his promises. We live by the faithfulness, his faithfulness. What remarkable faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ when his father turned his back on him and he cried out from Calvary Street, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was perfectly faithful to his father. He entrusted himself into his father's care. He entrusted himself perfectly into the word of God and the promises that God had made. And brothers and sisters, when he did it, I did it. And you are in Christ. When he did it, you did it. That's what this verse is plainly telling us, isn't it? Again and again. There's a story of an old lady who someone passed her in her dying days, came to see her and he opened up her Bible with her and she had TP written on the margin of the Bible in so many places. And the pastor turned to her and said, what does the TP mean? Kevin knows the story. Probably heard it better told than I have. But anyway, it was she had written there, tried and proved. Tried and proved. You will never, ever find God unfaithful to his word, brothers and sisters in Christ. Never, ever. Faith is a gift from God. It's the faith of the Son of God. Christ is both the author and the finisher of faith. I love that word. It means that he's the author means the chief leader. The one 
the arch one, the one that goes ahead, the one that, in a sense, writes the book of our lives, hasn't he? And he's written it all, hasn't he? All your days are numbered, brothers and sisters, and all the steps are numbered. Proverbs 16, verse 9 says that in our hearts, in our minds, we plan our paths, and God determines our footsteps. God determines our footsteps. All of them. All of them. All of the time. He's the author of all of it. The author of the time of love is the author of that time when he will come with the preaching of the gospel and breathe life into your dead body and you will see again and you will live and you will have a new creation that sees the glory of God, the new creation that hears the voice of the shepherd, that hears the promises of the shepherd, a new creation that sees the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory. He's the finisher of faith. That means he's the perfecter of faith. He's the author, Hebrews 12, too. He's the author and finisher, the author and perfecter. Eternal God, faithful. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was faithful to me. And he's faithful to me when I was unbelievably wicked and unfaithful to him. He's faithful to me and he's faithful to all of his people in all of our failings and all of our disappointments and all of our discouragement. He remains the same, our God, faithful. And listen to what this faith does at the end of this verse. He loved me. He loved me. And he gave himself for me. He loved me. He loved me. Child of God, they're the words of God to you, child of God, aren't they? That word love is such a misused word, isn't it? It's almost so, been so terribly abused in this world that it's almost lost so much of its power. But in the lips of our great God, it is a remarkable statement. He loved me. When did he love you? From before the foundation of the world. I just love to think about that. He loved me from before the foundation of the world. He loved me knowing all that was going to happen to me. <laughs> he loved me knowing all, all of my failings and all of my weaknesses and all of the disappointments. I have loved thee says the Lord. He's appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee, Jeremiah 31, 3, with an everlasting love. I've loved thee everlastingly. Therefore, see, God's love is an active love and it's a powerful love and it's effective love, isn't it? Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. He does the drawing, doesn't he? He draws his people to himself. You think of the life of Paul of Tarsus, Saul of Tarsus. There wasn't anyone more unlikely in all of Israel in the eyes of those believers to have been saved. You can't possibly imagine Peter and John after they'd <coughs> buried Stephen saying, well, that Saul there, he's our brother. Did they? There's no way in the world they would have thought that God loves this man. See, one of the problems we have, brothers and sisters, is that when we look through the eyes of flesh, we're always wrong. Always wrong. Always wrong. When we look through the eyes of flesh, we're always dethroning God. The eyes of faith. 
have our Lord Jesus Christ on the throne. He's right in proper place, isn't it? We love him. We really do love him because he first loved us. There is a real love, isn't it? It's a real love. It's a real love that loves what he loves and hates what he hates. A real love that finds what diminishes his glory in the eyes of his children in this world is offensive to us. And we just continually want to raise him up. We continually want to declare to our brothers and sisters the glory of this union. I love what the old hymn writer said, Nothing between my soul and my Saviour, so that his blessed face may be seen, nothing preventing the least of his favours. Keep the way clear, let nothing between. Just believe what God says. Paul said, didn't he? He said, I know whom I have believed. I know whom I have believed. Do you know whom you have believed? Believing's about a whom, isn't it? And what you believe will be determined by whom you believe. And the whom you believe is the whom of these verses. You'll believe all that they said here, won't you? And I've entrusted. You entrust everything into him and to him. The songs of heaven are songs of redeeming love. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sin. He loved me. He washed us from our sins in his own blood. The Lord didn't ever love us. The world will never love us. But he loves his own. Amazing love. It's amazing love, isn't it? It should overwhelm us. It should just warm our hearts. It should, in the depths of our despair, cause us to smile and say, well, behind these dark clouds... There's a sun still shining. He loved me. He loved me. And he gave himself for me. This is the last of the petitions in this verse. And I pray the Lord might cause you to go back and read the rest of Galatians and you'll see the power of what Paul is saying in the context here. He gave himself for me. Some of these little words in the Bible have just the most extraordinary power. That word for means on behalf of, for the sake of, instead of, in the place of. It means to hover over one as a chicken hovers over her little ones, to shield and defend them. That's what he does. That's in his death is doing that, isn't it? For me. It's to hover over and to shield and defend for that one's safety, for that one's advantage and for that one's benefit. So much in a little word, isn't it? Just a little word for. When you find that little word for in the Bible, go and have a look and look up your concordance and then smile. It's amazing. He loved me and he gave himself for me. He gave himself. He gave himself in his entirety. He gave himself. He gave himself in his covenant purposes and his promises. He gave himself to be made sin for us. He gave himself to be made a curse. He gave himself to bear the wrath and the hatred of wicked men. 
He gave himself to bear all the fierce arrows of Satan. But most of all, he gave himself to bear the infinite wrath of God on the sins of all his people that were his sins. He owned them as his sins when he was made sin and hung on Calvary's tree. He was made sin and he bore those sins, particularly, infinitely, knowingly. He bore them all in his own body on the tree and he bore the infinite holy wrath of God upon every single one of those sins. And they are no more. The wrath of God has been expended on them. And it is absolutely impossible for God to punish those sins ever again. And for God to remain holy and for God to remain just and for God to remain faithful. It is impossible, brothers and sisters. This is love. This is love. It's not a love that sits by... And waits, it's the love that's active, isn't it? It's nothing less than the entirety of deity could bring Adam's chosen sons to glory. He gave himself for me. Nothing less than the entirety of deity in human flesh could bear their sins in his own body and bear them away and bear the infinite wrath of God. Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, and unto him that look for him he shall appear a second time without sin unto salvation. Gave himself for me. For me. He gave himself for a particular people. He gave himself. And now... In heaven's glory, he has the glorious, glorious privilege of the blessed Holy Spirit being sent out into this world to gather all of those sheep and to gather them back to himself, aren't they? The Holy Spirit will come at the time of love and he'll take the things of the Lord Jesus Christ and he'll reveal them unto you. We have just touched the surface of the glory of this passage of scripture just this verse I pray the Lord will cause you to go as I do again and again and have for many many years and just just drink it in and have it as a pillow to rest my weary soul on and I pray that that be my, might be your portion we finished our services back in Australia um, singing a doxology from Jude so Kevin and Kimberly can practice now with me but listen to this. Listen to how God speaks in Jude 24. Now unto him, this one that gave himself for us, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. For the joy set before him, brothers and sisters, he did all this. Two things we must understand about our Saviour from the Scriptures. He is joyful now and he's satisfied. Yeah. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you. It's his job to present us. Not our job to present us. He'll present you <coughs> faultless, faultless 
before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Saviour, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. Just let me read our verse one more time and then I'll close. Thank you. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen. Amen, brothers and sisters. Thank you. Thanks, Kevin.